You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you've given to us your Word, the Bible. We pray that as we look now um, at this very challenging um, and also practical passage, that you would help us to put it into practice in our lives. Help us, Lord, to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Help us, Lord, in view of your mercy, to offer our lives to you as living sacrifices. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Amen. Um, uh, Friends, nod your head if you can hear me. Sweet. I get really uh, nervous on Zoom. But friends, I want you to think about one word. Worship. Repeat after me. Worship. I want you, for the next few seconds, to think in your own head what comes to mind when you think of worship. What is worship? Well, friends, uh, I want to tell you a story real quick. Um, It's a true story. It happened some years ago. There was a woman uh, in America, in the state of New Mexico, and she was at home. She was frying some tortillas. Uh, If you don't know what a tortilla is, it's kind of like pita bread, kind of like Lebanese bread. But there was a woman at home. She was frying some tortillas for lunch. As she was frying these tortillas, she noticed that the skillet burns on these tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. Crazy, right? She screamed. Her husband came. Her husband agreed. It was Jesus' face on the tortilla. Her children agreed. This was some kind of a miracle. So she went and she got a priest to come over and to bless the tortilla. So she got this Jesus tortilla, true story, and she put it in a glass case with piles of cotton underneath to make it look like it was floating on the clouds. She built in her room a shrine. She went on to open her home to visitors. Within a few months, more than 8,000 people came to worship at her house at the shrine of the Jesus of the Tortilla, or as I like to call it, the Jesus Tortilla. All of them agreed. That's the face of Jesus in the Tortilla. That is the very face of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Everyone agreed, except for one reporter who said he thought it looked more like former heavyweight boxing champion, Leon Spinks. And I can see some of you giggling and laughing, and I'm glad you did. Um, And it does seem crazy, right? That people can worship Jesus in a tortilla. It's crazy talk. And you might be sitting there thinking, shake my head, only in America, except except for that time in 2002, where thousands of people in Sydney gathered around to worship a fence post. True story. Because at a certain time of day, they were convinced that this certain fence post looked like the Virgin Mary. Most people want to worship. It's ingrained in us. It's inbuilt in us. We're aware that there is a God who is greater than us out there. We know we ought to worship this God But most people have got no idea what kind of worship 
God requires, what kind of worship God wants. And what is more, it's even true of Christians. Most Christians seem to vaguely think of worship as some kind of a mood, some kind of a vibe. It's the mood you get when you sit in a big old cathedral with pipe organs and stained glass windows. Or maybe it's the feels that you get when you sing a song chorus over and over and over again and then all of a sudden you find yourself crying. So many Christians suspect worship to be some kind of a mood or some kind of a vibe. But most Christians would find it hard to explain to you what it is exactly that God wants from us in worship. And so, what a great blessing it is that you and I have got Romans chapters 12 to 15. What an awesome blessing it is because in Romans chapters 12 to 15, God tells us exactly what kind of worship He does want what kind of worship he desires from his people. We don't have to be in the dark about the worship that our God wants. Here in Romans chapters 12 to 15, God tells us exactly what he wants from us in worship. Well, by way of recap, we saw the principles very clearly last week, didn't we? In the first half of chapter 12. First, we saw that true worship comes as a response to God's mercy. God has had mercy on us, on sinners like you and me. God gave Jesus to die for you and me so that we can be forgiven. So now, when we trust in Jesus as a free gift of God's mercy, we are forgiven. We're given righteousness. We're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're given eternal life. There is the starting point for worship. If you're not worshipping God for his mercy to you in Jesus, you haven't even got to the starting blocks of what worship really is. You may as well be worshipping a tortilla. True and proper worship, according to Romans 12, it comes as a response to God's mercy to us in Jesus. That's the first thing we saw. Secondly, we saw that true worship means we offer our whole lives to God. That's how we respond to his mercy appropriately. We learnt that worship is not about certain holy times or places or activities. No, no. We saw that God wants us to love and obey Him in every place, all the time, in every activity. And that means we need to stop thinking like the people of this rebellious and sinful world around us. We need to have our minds renewed by the message of Jesus. And we need to let that transform us so that we can test and approve God's will so that we will start to know and want what God wants. And then, once we know what God wants, we then do it. We then offer our lives to Him in response. We offer our lives to Him in worship. Look with me quickly in your Bibles at verse 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And I think these two verses are really important because it really sets up the rest of these next three or four chapters. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2 reads this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
That's true worship. That's true and proper worship. That's the worship that God wants. We respond to God's mercy in Jesus by living our whole lives for him. And now, in the next part of Romans chapter 12, we're getting real practical, very practical. Last week, in verses 3 to 8, we saw that worshipping means using our gifts to serve each other. And here in the rest of chapter 12, we get more of the same. We've got a list of practical examples of the kind of worship that God wants. So let's look together at this. Uh, Straight up, I need to tell you this. This part of the Bible is not very hard to understand. It's actually quite clear. You can't really get this wrong. It's very simple. This part is all about application. It's very application heavy. In verses 9 to 16, he talks about how we should relate to each other as Christians. The first command there is about love. And the point is, we mustn't love hypocritically. We mustn't love with ulterior motives. We need to love genuinely. Look with me at verse 9, at the opening few words of verse 9. Love must be sincere. It's easy to be insincere, isn't it? It's easy to try and look loving so that other people will be impressed. It's easy to put on a facade of love so that people will think what good Christians we are. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm sure a lot of us have experienced the car park miracle, haven't we? The car park miracle. Uh, Shout out to all the married couples out there and the families. The car park miracle is when you're fighting with each other on the way to church, and then you get to the car park at church, and it's a a miraculous thing where you come out of the car and everything's fine, and you're smiling and lovely all again. Uh, It's the car park miracle. Friends, it's harder to love with sincerity. It's harder to love the other people in this Zoom meeting because you actually value them. But think about God's love for us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because he had anything to gain from us. No, we were helpless. We couldn't do anything. We couldn't give him anything. No, God loved us genuinely. It was was a sincere love. And so Paul's trying to make the point, as recipients of God's sincere love, it's not right for us to then offer phony love, fake love to other people, superficial love. That's not an appropriate response to God's mercy. And so we need to stop pretending. We need to stop with a Sunday facade. We need to stop with a life group facade. We need to stop with a Zoom Facade. It is so easy to fake it on Zoom and just endure the one or two hours and pretend everything's okay. Don't worry about me because I'm fine. It's too easy. No, this passage is calling on each and every one of us. We need to get real with each other. We need to be authentic with one another. It's time to actually get to know each other and it's time to actually care. And I know you're busy. And I know you've got enough problems of your own. But that's the kind of worship that God's mercy demands. Sincere love. The next command there in verse 9, we're told to hate evil things and cling to the stuff that's pleasing to God. Look with me at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Well, church, let me ask you, how's your worship life going there? Are you someone who hates what is evil 
and clings to what is good? Are there evil things in this world that fascinate you? Are there evil things in this world that you enjoy online? Or evil things that maybe you long for? Or perhaps are you wallowing in anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness? Or perhaps are you entertaining the thought of some illicit relationship? Or I wonder if some of us are addicted to pornography or addicted to gambling or addicted to money or addicted to any kind of substance. Church, I reckon for us, one of the biggest problems is the internet. And I recognize that the internet is a good gift from God and I recognize that so many wonderful things can happen because of the internet, just like the Zoom meeting that we're having right now. But it needs to be said, I think, that so much of what's on the internet is just plain evil. So much of what's on social media is immoral and absolutely godless. And yet, we let this stuff into our hearts. We let this stuff into our homes and into our minds. We, we watch this stuff. We dwell on it. We get pulled in by it. Sometimes we even share it or tag other people in it. So verse 9, how do we hate what is evil and cling to what is good? Again, the key is God's mercy, isn't it? The key is God's mercy. Jesus died for us to set us free from evil. That's the key. Jesus died us to set us free from evil. We don't want to go back and wallow in the evil that Jesus died to set us free from. We need to let God's mercy transform our minds so that we'll want what He wants. And just a quick side note here. As you read the second half of Romans chapter 12, if you're seeing rules and rules and rules and rules, it means you haven't yet understood God's mercy. The true Christian is someone who's understood God's mercy and now is looking to respond appropriately to all that he or she has received from God. So that's what this part of Romans is about. And then, once we recognize God's mercy for us in Jesus, then we need to go ahead and do whatever it takes. We need to do what it takes to remove the evil from our lives. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Remember what Jesus said? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your TV causes you to sin, chuck it in the bin. Get rid of your laptop if that's what it takes. And that might sound really radical to you. And I know that might seem really inconvenient. But you know what? Your godliness is way more important to God than your convenience. Is your smartphone causing you to sin? then get rid of it and get a dumb phone. We need to remove the things in our lives that lead us to evil. Instead, we need to cling on to what is good in God's eyes. Friends, get hold of a good Christian biography and read it. Regularly read God's word. Get your hands on some really good gospel-centered podcasts. There are so many good ones out there. Spend more time encouraging other Christians praying for other Christians, spend more time out in God's good creation, marveling at His awesomeness. You want to worship God's way? Forget the tortillas, forget the fence post, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. That is true and proper worship. Verse 10 comes back to love. We are, as Christians, called to work hard at loving each other deeply. Look with me at verse 10. Verse 10. 
be devoted to one another in love. Other Bible translations might say, love one another deeply or love each other with brotherly affection. Again, it's, it's not easy, is it? And I know, I, I mean, there's seriously no way that you can be devoted to everybody in this Zoom meeting, even in a small church like ours. So then how do we deal with it? How, how do we apply this in our lives? Again, the answer is, we start with God's mercy to us. That's the solution. We start with God's mercy. You remember that God has devoted himself to you. You remember that it's not right to accept God's devotion and mercy, but then be indifferent and uncaring to his people. And then you get on with it and you deal with it one person at a time. You love on one person at a time. It's like the journey of a thousand miles. You take it one step at a time. One person at a time. Whoever God places in front of you, give them all your devotion, brotherly, sisterly affection. Love them. Verse 10 again, we're told to treat each other with respect. How are you doing there? He's telling us that we don't put other Christians down in order to make us feel good. On the contrary, we honor them. We hold them in high regard. Why? Because God wants us to. Why? Because they're precious to God. Look with me at verse 10. Honor one another above yourselves. Verse 11, I think, is another great challenge. Verse 11 is wonderful and difficult at the same time. It's all about keeping up our enthusiasm, keeping up our passion as Christians, the fire in the gut. Look with me at verse 11. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You know, church, uh, there's something I've noticed in doing years of ministry. Uh, What I've noticed is no matter what stage of life you're at, there is always a good reason to keep your Christianity on the back burner. There's always a good reason to let your Christian life take second place. You're in high school, and then you realize you can't go to youth group for a few months because you have the HSC or tutoring or exams, and then you get into uni, and it's the same. You have uni assessments, and many churches struggle with this tragedy where during assessments, uni students just disappear. They're MIA. They're not at life group. They're not at prayer meeting. They're not at church. It seems like they're out worshiping some other God. You go to uni, out goes your fellowship. When it gets busy, no accountability. All of a sudden, uni students are not present at things. And then you finish uni, you're lucky enough to get a job. And once you've got the job, you need to establish yourself in your career. So what do you do? You work long hours, and therefore, church is going to have to wait. You work long hours, long hours, and then maybe you get married and you have children. By the time you fit in work and the kids and everything else, again, Christian stuff's going to have to wait till later. But then it doesn't get easier as the kids grow up, I think. The women go back to work to help pay off the mortgage. And the men's jobs, they don't get any easier. Now those young guns who are working hard to establish themselves, now they're showing you up. You can't afford to get retrenched at your age, so you keep on working long hours. There's still no time to devote to Christian stuff. Eventually, you retire. And then people seem to think they've earned a rest. Church will fit in after the around-the-world holiday, they say. Church will fit in after that round of golf. 
Churchill fit in after the fishing trip with the boys. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, there's always a good reason, there's always a good excuse to just cruise along as a Christian, making zero eternal impact. But God hasn't just cruised along with us, has He? He gave His Son to die for you and me. We as Christians, we can't really understand that kind of mercy and then be lukewarm. I think lukewarm Christians is an oxymoron. A lukewarm Christian means you haven't understood the gospel. You haven't really understood the extraordinary price that your maker has paid for your eternal salvation. Friends, that's not the kind of worship that God's mercy demands. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're at. God's mercy demands a bit of passion, a bit of zeal, a bit of fire in the gut, a bit of sacrifice. And you'd agree with me um, that it's always encouraging to see those kind of Christians who are like that, right? It doesn't matter if they've got 15 kids and a mortgage of 10 million bucks. They're still working hard at mission and discipleship. They'll still be devoted to to, to doing things for God. They still make an effort to get along to things. They manage to keep the fire burning. And just a quick side note, what I noticed in that verse, they manage to keep the fire burning. See what it says there? By serving the Lord. That's how. So those who haven't served the Lord in a long time, they're lacking motivation to serve the Lord and they have no passion. But I think Paul's onto something. We keep the fire burning by serving the Lord. Verse 12 talks about how to handle the tough times, the difficult times. And there are lots of tough times in life. Again, it's about living in light of God's mercy. When we face tough times, we need to let the hope of heaven fill us with joy. When life gets hard, we need to be patient. We need to be praying. We need to keep on talking to God because that's the only way it'll make sense. Look with me at verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's true, isn't it? So many of us, when we go through hardship, the first thing we do is we run the other way from God. But God's wisdom here in Romans 12, teaching us about true worship, he's saying, no, the, the, the solution is you run to God. That's the only way that your suffering will make sense. Well, we continue. And the next one is about being generous to other Christians. Look with me at verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. If you have a pen, you can underline that word, share. Share. Share with other Christians who are in need. Church, let me ask you, is that you? Are you generous to the other Christians who are in need? Do you know the other Christians who are in need? Because God has been so generous to us, hasn't he? God's been so generous to us, it's only right that we would respond to Him by being generous to His people, right? In chemistry, I'm very thankful to say that there are so many generous people in our church, in this Zoom meeting right now. I'm so thankful to God for the many people in our church who are generous, who are supporting our Bible college students week by week so that they can be trained for the gospel. But it also must be said There are plenty of Christians out there who are suffering, aren't there? Both within and without our church, both in Sydney 
in Afghanistan, in South Africa, in all over the world. And I know that we can't help them all. But I think what this passage is saying is we need to do what we can with what we've got generously. What about hospitality? The next part of verse 13, look at what it says, verse 13. Practice hospitality. Now, uh, don't take this super seriously, what I'm about to say next. Um, but what it says, when it says there, practice hospitality, uh, the word there, practice, it's actually the same word as persecute, to pursue, to persecute. That's what it means. And I reckon uh, it's a nice image, to be honest. Now, don't overdo this. But I reckon it's a nice image that we are told by God to persecute hospitality. What does that look like? We're to persecute people with hospitality. We should be chasing people around with coffee. That's what it means. We should be chasing people around with dinner invitations. We should be inviting people over to our house until they're sick of it after lockdown. Friend, let me ask you, as a recipient of God's great hospitality, let me ask you, are you hospitable? I know that by law, we can't have anyone over in our homes right now. But, church, I reckon a good way that we can apply this verse in our lives is for us to take some time today to write down a list of names, to write down some names of people that you want to invite to your house for lunch or for dinner after lockdown, a list of people that you want to take out to brunch, someone you want to buy food for and just listen to and just celebrate and just pray for and just love on. Why don't you, as soon as this service is over, write down on your phone a list of names, people that you want to take out for a nice brunch when all this is over. Uh, or if you're broke, and I know if you're a uni student, you might be broke, then why don't you take someone out for coffee? Who can afford that? Write down some names. Why not? Cook your life group leader a meal and just thank them for their gospel ministry and just thank them for praying for you. Why not? Invite your kids' church teacher over for lunch at your place just to thank them for teaching your kids and loving on your kids. But, like I said, we don't want to be Christians that hear God's word and ignore it. We want to apply it. So, why don't you take some time today and write down some names. And once lockdown is over, chase it up. Persecute them with hospitality. Uh, because that is the kind of worship that God wants from us in response to His mercy. Smash the stained glass window. Stuff the tortilla and the fence post. Practicing hosp hospitality, that is true worship. Verse 14 talks about how to respond to the people who hurt you. The people in church who criticize you. The people in church who talk badly about you behind your back. People that hurt you. How should you deal with Christians who persecute you or hurt you? Look with me at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The next bit again is caring for each other. It's getting involved in each other's lives. It's sharing in the good times, sharing in the bad times. Look with me at verse 15. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. I've visited some churches that are really good at this. If there's a wedding, pretty much the whole church would show up. They're there. If there was a funeral in the church, everyone's there. They would be there. They wanted to be involved in each other's lives at that kind of deep and intimate level. 
to be honest, it doesn't seem to be the culture here so much at chemistry, and I reckon that's a bit sad. Verse 15, look at what he says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. My friends, if you're getting married anytime in the next couple of months, the next couple of years, if you're someone that intends to get married, as a married Christian guy, let me give you some advice. Invite the whole church. Don't be selfish. Invite the whole family. I know that means additional dollars. Don't worry about that. Invite the whole family. You know why? You can make back money, but you can't make back memories and moments with your family. We're not strangers. We're not acquaintances. We're family. Whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, God has bind, bound us together as a spiritual family. See the other people in the Zoom call? We are family. God's chosen. We are family and therefore we must obey. I think as a church, we really, really, really need to work hard at verse 15. Like verse 15b, mourn with those who mourn. Real talk, I know that some of you are mourning these days. I know that some of you have gone through heaps of difficulties in the past year with work, with family, with illness. I know a bunch of you who have a parent who's really unwell or who have a loved one that is really suffering so much. But for me as a pastor, what really breaks my heart is that we don't actually share with each other. I know of all these different people's problems because they tell me, and I'm praying for you, and I care. But what about everyone else? What about everyone else in the family that God has placed to look after you? See, church, we can't apply the second part of verse 15 if we don't know who's going through difficulty and pain. Truth be told, I reckon the family culture of our church at the moment is quite weak. And I think that's sad. And I think... That's something we need to think about and something we need to try and apply so that our family can become more healthy for the sake of God's glory. Again, the key is it comes back to God's mercy. God hasn't been indifferent to us. When we tell God our problems, he doesn't shrug his shoulders. He doesn't give us an empty air, I'll be praying for you. No, we have a God who listens to us, who loves us. God hasn't kept his distance from us. He has mercifully got involved in our lives. And now we, as recipients of his mercy, are commanded to respond by getting involved in each other's lives, by showing empathy and care, comforting one another, because that's the kind of worship that God wants. The last commands there, they're against social climbing in church. And you know what I mean. You see it all the time in life. You see it at work. You see it in different clubs or societies. Uh, People, by default, uh, people look for the popular people. They look for the powerful people, the beautiful people, the influential people. And they try to ingratiate themselves with them. They try to pander up to them. They try to curry favor with them. They try to add them on LinkedIn or get in on their good books. Paul's telling us, Church isn't the place for games like that. For the person who's received God's mercy, that is an inappropriate way to worship. At church, we're all here on the same basis. We are sinners saved by God's mercy. It doesn't matter how smart or how dumb you are, or how rich or how poor you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. We are all here 
because God has saved us. There's no room for cliques at church. There's no room for cliques at church. We shouldn't just be hanging out with the cool people, whoever they might be. We shouldn't be hanging out with the people who are just like us. People who like the things that we like. Oh, you like anime? I like anime. You like basketball? I like basketball. We need to be willing, all of us, to associate all of us with each other. Uni students, have you befriended any of our young parents? Something to think about. We all relate to each other as people under the mercy of God, as equals. And why? Because that's the kind of worship that God wants. Look with me at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Well, there it is, friends. That's kind of the halfway point of this passage. Sorry. Um, There's a picture of a worshipping church. What we've got up to that point, this is the picture of a worshipping church. Here is a picture of a church of people responding to the mercy of God appropriately. There's the picture of a church of people not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of their minds. Here is a picture of a church who know and love what God wants. Here is the Bible's picture of a worshipping church. I'll be honest with you, today's sermon is long. And I'll tell you why it's long. It's long because this passage is particularly relevant for you and me. That's why there's no apologies about this. This passage is particularly instructive for where we are at as chemistry. What we need to do in response to God's mercy. Friends, notice, for worship, there's no tortillas. There's no weird fence posts. There's no holy buildings or pipe organs or stained glass windows. There's no rock bands and singing repetitively and crying. This is worship God's way. So, how are we going? How do we compare with this passage here at Chemistry as a church family? Are we a church that worships God's way? I reckon there are a lot of good things happening in our church. There are lots of faithful people here who serve God and who serve his people with zeal and faithfulness. Uh, There are lots of people here at church who show empathy and care. And I'm so thankful for the people who show empathy and care, even with all the troubles and pain in their own life. And they still get on with the mission. I don't want to embarrass anyone by naming names, but here in our church, there is real evidence of God's work. We see people at work in each other's lives, and that's a wonderful thing. But church, chemistry isn't quite heaven yet, is it? I think this passage gives us lots of things to think about, Lots of things as individuals to repent about. Our church is conformed to the world in many ways, I think. Most particularly, as I look at this passage, I think it really shows our conformity to Western individualism. Western individual. I think we are very much still a group of individuals. And for many of us, Our lives barely intersect. For many people here, the full extent of our fellowship is that we happen to sit together in the same building for an hour each week, or each couple of weeks, God forbid. We don't actually know each other at all. 
let alone sincerely love each other, let alone actually care for each other, weep with each other, we actually keep our distance. So is that you? Are you holding back from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you deliberately staying detached? Because it's not the picture of Romans 12, is it? It's not the way a person who knows God's mercy should live. It's not the way God wants us to respond in worship. So the question is, friends, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? There's, there's nothing hard about this passage. This is literally just God's straight out commands. This here in Romans chapter 12 is literally God saying, here is what I want from you. Christian, what are you going to do? Are you going to disobey God and stay detached? Is that your plan? Are you going to ignore what God says and stay conformed to the world? Are you going to say to God, you know what, God, I refuse to worship you your way. Or will you repent and change and get involved and start loving and start taking an interest in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you going to start loving them, laughing with them, crying with them, celebrating them, giving them hospitality, showering them with love? By way of application, if you haven't got anything out already, by way of application, let me say this. Why not take a baby step this week? Just a baby step. Look through the Facebook group. Shoot someone an encouraging message. A text message. A baby step. If you want more than a baby step, why don't you pick up your phone and call someone and just see how their week's going and just see how you can pray for them and how you can bless them and serve them and love them and get involved in their life. I know you're busy. I know you're tired working from home, studying from home, homeschooling the kids. I know you're too young. I know you're too old and you're too in between. I know the circumstances of your family make it hard. I know you've got a tough job. I know that your health isn't that good right now. I know that you're too pregnant. I know that your mental health isn't as good as it could be. I know that you're going through your own stuff right now, but frankly, We've all got our own excuses. I'm just not convinced that there's any excuse that's good enough to disobey God with. Well, let's look at verse 17, 21. Verses 17 to 21 focus on our relationship with people outside the church, our relationship with non-Christians, unbelievers. The first command there is about responding to evil. Look at verse 17, the first command. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. The second command assumes that the world is watching us. They're watching how we live, maybe to accuse us, or maybe, maybe just to check out if there's anything to this Christianity thing. They're looking at you and looking at me. So it's not good enough to say, who cares what anyone else thinks about us? The fact is, we are ambassadors of Christ in this world. What we do reflects directly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need not only to do what is right, we need to be seen to do what is right. Look with me at verse 17 again. Verse 17, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Verse 18 is about living at peace. Obviously, not everyone in this world is going to like you. 
it's not going to be possible to be at peace with everyone. But the point is this, don't let the war be coming from your side. You do whatever you can do to live at peace. You be ready to forgive. You be ready to hold out the olive branch. Look with me at verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The next bit's about not taking revenge. God is the judge. God will sort it all out in the end so you don't have to put every wrong right here in this world. Look with me at verse 19 and 20. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, then quoting from Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, then quoting from Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Which I don't think means you will singe him or burn him. I think the author is saying it means you're going to shame him. As you keep doing good to someone who's doing evil, you will hopefully shame them into a better way of life, into a better course of action, into better behavior. And then Paul summarizes with this last verse in verse 21. When it comes to this world, we need to overcome evil with good. We must not let the world push us into ungodliness. Instead, we need to let our godliness push out and commend the gospel to the world. Look with me at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, church, what a journey, right? What an exhausting journey. There it is. There is the worshipping Christian in the world. They stand out, don't they? They stand out as a person who strives to live righteously. They stand out as a person who strives to live at peace. They stand out because they know the mercy of God, because they're transformed by the mercy of God. Well, it's no wonder people want to worship a tortilla or a fence post. It's no wonder people would rather have the pipe organs and the stained glass windows or the 20 minutes of singing on a Sunday because, because that's so easy. And God's way of worship is not easy, is it? In one sense, it costs nothing to be a Christian. We become God's people because of God's sheer mercy. It is a free gift to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then you look at Romans 12 and you see that it costs everything to be a Christian, doesn't it? In view of God's mercy, God does not want an hour of your Sunday each week. In view of God's mercy, He doesn't want to be squeezed in in your life as a last priority after your job, after your family, after your assignment, after your video games. God wants your one hour on Sundays, plus every other hour, every other day, all of you. He wants all of you devoted to him all the time, serving and loving his people, standing out for good in this world. It's not easy, but it is what God deserves, isn't it? I mean, when you really think about it, when you realize what he's done for us in Jesus... How could we give God anything less than everything? I don't think we can. This is the worship that God deserves. 
So church, let's stop with the excuses and let's do it. Let's pray. Our merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that while we were still sinners, you gave Jesus to die on the cross in our place. We thank you that he paid the full price for our sin. And now when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are put right with you as a free gift. Lord, we thank you that now we have peace with you and that we stand firm in the sure hope of your glory. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and we pray that now, in view of your mercy, that you would change our minds, that you'll help us to want to live your way, to want to worship you your way. Lord, please work in us by your Spirit and give us the power and the desire to live for you each day, every day, no matter the situation. In all that we do, Father, we pray that you would fill us with passion and zeal. Fill us with love for each other, Lord. Fill us with a desire for hospitality, Lord. Make us stand out as your people in this world. And Lord, we ask that you might help us to do that because you are worthy, because we want you to be glorified. And we pray that you would be glorified in how we respond. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.